So I've been so excited all week to be with you on Sunday morning because when I miss a week, I feel like things are out of sorts for me. Um, and what I want to do uh, with us as we just begin is I want to give just a little bit of introduction of where we're going to head for the next seven weeks, and then we'll pause, I'll say a quick prayer, and then we'll shoot off into our message for today, So, which is about love because it's Valentine's Day, of course. No, it just happened that way. Um, but I've been reading this novel lately by Albert Camus, a very thought-provoking author called The Stranger. And his main character in this novel is a French-Algerian named Marisalt. And the first chapter starts off like this. His mom dies and he feels no grief at all. And it's just a strange novel. And the novel goes on and it goes on. And he hangs out with pimps and criminals and feels no moral disgust. There's no moral tension in him. And just when you're reading and you, you, can't, you can't seem to get any more, it goes on and on. When his life is threatened, he feels no fear. Um, he actually murders a man and feels no guilt. He meets a wonderful woman and at the climax of this novel, but he doesn't know how to express his love or even love her at all. And so Marisalt, this novel ends in this like terrible Shakespearean tragedy, right? Everything is terrible. And the point is that he had no internals. He had no emotions. He had no heart. And so it, it's, this novel makes us think about what it would be like to be human without any emotions. And the novel comes to the conclusion that he's not human. He shows none of the common emotions that make us human. None of the things that are most compelling about what it means to be on this journey on planet Earth. And so what I've been thinking about lately is about the centrality of our internals. And how our emotions, are that what is inside of us, direct us in our life. And so um, I've been learning a lot from neuroscience and from psychology. And I just want to share with you a little bit about that. That emotions are absolutely essential to what it means to be human. And our internals are literally the catalyst for human living. We, we, we have fear and anger and joy. And that sort of just catalyzes us. It moves us into deeper thought and deeper ways of being. So emotions sort of spark our rational thinking. And of course what we've learned lately is that emotions are intelligent. They have a way of telling us what's going on in a room. Uh, you know, our brains are wired as such as that when you see an alligator attacking you, you run out of fear, right? That's an intelligent emotion. And um, so we are literally wired to be these creatures with these internal monitors within us. And so um, there's a lot of different ways about talking about these internals. We could talk about our feelings, our moods. We could talk about the physiology of emotions. We could talk about the neuroscience, what's going on in our brains, or behavioral. But what I want to talk about is sort of the ethics how our emotions help us engage the world around us. And so this professor, Robert Solomon, has this great quote. He says, emotions are engagements with the world that give us insight into the world. And so all of us, um, I'll give you a couple of stories here that really helped me. I grew up with this friend in high school who, whenever anything went wrong, his mom would get instantly angry. So, uh, for example, if he didn't get good grades, it was the teacher's fault and she would voice her anger at her teacher at hit my friend's teacher. If he didn't get to play in the basketball game, it was the coach's fault, and she used her anger to get him into the playing field. If his Nike shoes busted, it was Foot Locker's fault, by golly. And so everything in her life, she used anger to engage um, this. And this isn't always bad. Um, my, dad, uh, my dad was a master at this. Um, he was a construction superintendent, 
And so uh, he, when things weren't going right on the job site, uh, it was always like, it's like the, the biggest memory of my childhood. He would use his anger in sort of like um, a real directed way. So, so it was very calm and he'd be like, um, so Bill, it's really hard to make any progress on this house when the cement job is so poorly done. And, you know, my dad would constantly be doing this. So he would use anger as a motivating factor, you know, for people. And so, and we all do this. We all do this. Um, I was at the DMV, and there was this, you know, the DMV. It's like sucks any inspiring conversations out of the room. And um, this African-American woman, God bless her, she would call everyone sweetie pie. So everyone who would come up and be frustrated, she'd be like, sweetie pie, we'll be just right with you. And just by the words of saying it, she like breathed this like calm into the room, right? Because when everyone's a sweetie pie, that, that's a much better environment at the DMV. And so her love, her kindness taught her how to engage the world. And this, this to me was like a, a real beautiful insight that we use our emotions to engage the world. It's our internal life that directs externally what's going on. And I've always felt... Um, fascinated by, uh, frightened and fascinated by that proverb in the Bible that says, guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. And we could translate it, guard your internals, for it determines the course of your life. And uh, when I thought about this, I thought about sort of one of the deepest mysteries of the Christian faith is that, that we believe the paradox, the mystery is that God became human. And uh, in our Gospels, the four narrative stories, Jesus has a lot of emotions, and engages the world with love and with anger and with fear. Um, and that's rather fascinating, especially in the history of religion and especially really core to Christian faith. And so as we take this journey from this moment and then seven weeks later where we celebrate resurrection, as we go through this story of Jesus, we're going to look closely at the passages that move us in that story. Passage where we'll experience what the disciples experienced and what Jesus experienced, where he felt love and wonder and grief, and compassion, and anger, and joy, and loneliness, and then lastly, fear. Because I'm fascinated that Robert Solomon's thesis, that our emotions, and I want to see if this might give us some insight into who Jesus is, and how our lives can be framed by the eternal internal, is what I'm calling it. So how our insides and our emotions, sometimes our actions are, um, sometimes our actions are sort of for the present moment, right? We act out of anger so quickly, but how do we shape our life that's lasting? That's something that has eternal value. So eternal, internal. Um, allowing our lives to be shaped by Jesus's internal intentions. So what would looking at Jesus's life uh, um, look like if we looked at those insides? Because all of us are on this journey. Whether we like it or not, we're on this journey of discipleship, of what it means to follow. And the Gospel of Matthew says, if you want to be my disciple, follow me. And Dallas Willard has this phenomenal way of looking. It says, a disciple or an apprentice or a learner is simply someone who has decided to be with another person under appropriate conditions in order to become capable of doing what that other person does or become what that other person is. So he says this, I am learning from Jesus how to lead my life, my whole life, my real life. So we're going to look at the way Jesus uses his emotions closely in these gospel texts. And we're going to allow it to inspire us and to, to reframe our internals within. So my deepest hope is that as we walk from the valleys of this Lenten experience to the mountaintops of Easter, that each one of us would learn to engage the world with the same internal intentions of Jesus. Are you with me? I know that was a long, 
uh, intro to a series, but I got real excited about it, you know. And um, so that's that, and we're going to pray together, okay. God, thank you for being a community, a learning community, for being a community of honest questions where we pursue things that matter. And we're going to be okay with saying hard things and, and asking the difficult questions. Thank you for this community. Thank you for us being able to talk about faith in fresh, new ways. I ask you, God, um, to look inside each one of our hearts, to reframe our internals by eternity, not by sort of the present moment. To give us a framework, and outwork, so that our insides will transform what our outsides do. In this season, God, do something transformative within each one of us. It's in your name we say, amen. I wonder if you've ever had a friend share with you this. I gave him my heart, or I gave her my heart. The sobs come and go as you pass them a Kleenex. They continue. I gave him my body, my trust, my everything. Now your body shakes a little and you fight back your own tears. And they say, I feel like parts of me will never heal from this pain. As you attentively listen, you you simply sigh and you gently nod your head because you felt that pain before. You felt the pain of loving something other than yourself. Now imagine a different scenario. Maybe you've listened to a friend devastated at losing a dream job. Or maybe you've listened to the grief of someone who lost a family member. Or maybe you've sat with a person, a couple that could not get pregnant no matter what they did. The vulnerability and raw humanness, the transparent truth of these moments is sobering, isn't it? The internal that we live with is, is serious. And love, this thing that we have within our very being that we give out to others, it's, it's serious. And it's a force within us that can cause us great good or great harm. It's, it's a fire that warms us or that burns us at times. And I love what the Song of Solomon says about love. It, the Song of Solomon is a book of love in the Bible. It's, it's a crazy book. It's like a book on romantic love. It's love poetry in the center of the Bible. And it affirms that love is good, but love also is painful at times, right? And it says three times the same line. It says, do not stir up or awaken love until it is ready. And it's like this warning. It's this awesome warning to us of, hey, love is a fire. Be careful. Be careful. And then it has this great poem in the center of it. It says, for love is strong as death, passion as fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, a raging flame. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. So love is this emotion at the core of what it means to be human, to love another person, another thing. This is what it means to be human, and oftentimes it's a fire. It's ability to burn or warm us. But what's so amazing about this is uh, in 1 Timothy 1.7, it says, For God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, rather a spirit and power of love. And of self-discipline because this power within you, this ability to love other things and other people, it's also a good thing, right? Because when love goes right, isn't it beautiful? 
Isn't it so wonderful to love a child, to love a family member so deeply, to be known so deeply by someone else? But here is my problem with love in our American context. Um, At this moment in history, the way we talk about love is muddled, right? Because we can say to one another, we love ponies and rainbows and tacos and pizza. And on the other hand, we could say we love our family, our friends, and our spouses. The same word, right? And we don't love our spouses like we love tacos, right? These are very different things. And so um, we want to get clear on what love is and what it does. And the ancient Greeks had a wonderful way of talking about love that I think is really helpful for us. And so they use this word. They use many different words to to talk about love. They use the first word, eros. This is where we get, um, this is uh, romantic love, right? This is like fiery, passionate love. Um, This is the intimate kind of love. This is Romeo and Juliet. Are you with me? This is the type of love that does crazy risky things and this type of love is fleeting. It's only short. If we're all honest with ourselves, this is only short term in our relationships with one another Um, and this is the kind of love Anna's wishful thinking of Prince Hans on the Southern Isles and Frozen. Are you with me now? Yes. Okay. Here we go. So um, this is the fleeting love. And as anyone who's loved knows, these last a season. And it, it's to be enjoyed sometimes, but it also can really cause us deep heartbreak and pain. It can lead us astray. And so the Greeks use this word to say, hey, that's that type of love. That's eros. And then the Greeks use this word, philos. This is the word we get for um, Philadelphia, brotherly love. So this is the love between family and friends. This is what we love our furry friends with, y'all, right? This is philos. Um, this is the type of love you share with people that you just enjoy being around. This is friendly love. This is Forrest and Bubba Gump. Are you with me? Or, or to use a more updated, this is Stanley Yelnots and Zero in the movie Holes. This is friendship with two people. Um, but what I find fascinating is the Greeks use this third word. They use this word agape. And, and simply, the Greeks meant it very simple, that Greek, that agape is a broader type of love, a more inclusive type of love. Literally, agap means to put a hole in what you consider love. And what is beautiful about this is early Christians come along, and of course, they're coming from an Aramaic and Hebrew background, and they're looking for a way to talk about God's love. And so they, they have a concept in Hebrew called hesed. And hesed is covenantal dynamic love. It's... Um, the way to express it is, is God's love for human beings and humankind. And, but they don't have a word to say that in Greek. So they take over agape. Early Christians and early Jews, they take over this agape word and they infuse it with all this beautiful meaning. And so agape becomes a word that can mean sacrificial love. It can mean committed love. It can mean this covenantal love between God and humanity. And what's fascinating about this is it's dependent love. And so um, what that means is that you, when you love someone with agape love, you commit that you're not your own being, that your love is also dependent on their love for you. And that's risky and scary and vulnerable, that your very identity is shaped by your love for someone else. So agape love is very risky. Agape love says, I cannot be all that I am created to be if you are not becoming all that you are created to be. So it is... Uh, powerful. It costs you something to love with this agape love. It, it's not for the moment love. It's long-term commitment in love. It's um, when our marriages and when our partnerships are at their very best, we live out of agape. 
right? Um, but we're human, and so we don't always live. This agape is like the highest standard of what love can mean. That you are committing that we are not lone rangers, but the love we share between one another is vulnerable and shapes our very identity, the core of who we are. So I find it really fascinating that early Christians begin to use this language of agape love. And um, in the one of the most beautiful passages of all scripture is Jesus is literally being baptized by John in all four of gospels. And of course, um, beautiful things happen, doves and the skies and the heavens open. And this word from God says, you are my son, the agapatas, the, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. And you have this scene of like breathtaking wonder of God showing God's love for Jesus and this, this sort of force of love that's being shared and shed and in-breaking into human history. And later theologians will talk about the Trinity as this community of shared love. That in God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, there is this love that just reverberates, that echoes across the universe. This is the community of shared love. And this scene, and through Jesus, we are meant to be uh, recipients of this type of love because Jesus' life now becomes our life. Because the scandalous message is that Jesus became who we are so that we could share in his life. So that we are now people who share in this agape love. We are people caught in this community of shared love. We live out this vision that each one of us is sons and daughters of God Most High. And that's scandalous and that's risky in this ancient world. The agape love is this dynamic love for each one of us. This love that is dependent upon God. We have to trust God to receive this type of agape, dynamic, covenantal love. Okay, so that's like all good and it feels like really loving and awesome, especially for Valentine's Day. And then Jesus, right after this scene, he, the community of shared love shows itself to the earth. And we're like, yeah, yeah, this is like the best thing that's ever happened to humankind. This is good news. And then Jesus goes in the wilderness for 40 days and you're like, dun, 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 dun. Like, terrible story, right? And so this wilderness. And I want to talk about this, this Jesus, this Savior to us filled with this agape love from the Father, goes into the wilderness. And you're like, man, I, I thought you would like go to the downtown streets of Calcutta and serve everyone with this agape love. But he goes to the wilderness. And, and um, I want to show you this painting. Can you see it? Okay, so this is an Italian painting. And, and many of you know this story, but in the wilderness he encounters three temptations. And we have, this is like, epic storytelling of all time because we have the devil and we have the wilderness and we have 40 days. So these three elements are really, really important and I want to, you to remind you of what they are. So the wilderness is this metaphor of the struggle between good and evil. This is the context for when all the good and evil takes place. And the devil is the symbol for evil in our world, for this force of death and destruction, the one who is opposed to love and health and wholeness. Literally, in the Christian tradition, this is not like a man with a pitchfork and, uh, you know, that's everywhere, right? It's this idea. It's this idea. It's, it's, um, it's, it's back to Harry Potter. It's Voldemort and the one who should, shall not be named, you know? This force in our world that is contrary to this goodness and this love and this health that we're all striving for. And so you have the wilderness, the devil, and then you have 40 days. And 40 days is this deep resonant symbol in the Bible for this time of completion 
And it's meant as a direct parallel from the 40 days that the people of God, the Israelites, when they escaped Egyptian bondage, they were 40 days in the wilderness where they were tested. So Jesus is telling this story, is living out the same identity that the people of God went through in the wilderness. And so then come the temptations. And in this painting, um, marvelously, you have all three. Jesus is asked by the devil, will you turn this stone into a bread? To which Jesus says no. And Jesus is saying that I will not allow my work to only be about material. My life on earth is not about just cars and houses. I, I am about some bigger project than that. And then if you see at the very top of the painting, um, the devil leads him to this uh, high point and says to him, if you bow to me, all the kingdoms of the world will be yours. And so it's this, this call for power, this call for our lives to be about how we influence and impact and sort of, but it's manipulative power because it's about the power that the devil brings to the world, sort of like power gone wrong, you know, getting our own way out of our own means. And of course, Jesus says, no, my life will not be defined by that. And then on the right side of the painting, you have him at the pinnacle of Jerusalem. Now remember, this gospel, the gospel of Luke, it's all heading to Jerusalem. It's the center of all the action of redemption for the world. The cosmos hangs in the balance and something scandalous is going to happen. A God became human and dies on a cross. And so the devil says, will you throw yourself from here? And you will be caught by the angels, as, as the Bible has promised. And, and Jesus responds by saying, don't put God to the test. And it's this, this idea of like, um, I'm not going to play religious games with you. I'm here for a mission, and I'm going beyond. Karl Marx said that religion can become the opiate of the masses. This way that we, we abuse and use and manipulate. And Jesus said, the mission that I am from, the religion that I'm about, is not going to manipulate or coerce people it's going to be about this astonishing love for others, um, this poor. And so it's going to be about the poor. It's going to be about binding up the brokenhearted. And so these three temptations, Jesus says no, makes it through there. And he is enveloped. He is living out of this agape love from the Father. He's living in this, um, this sense. He's living beyond just the eros, beyond just the philos, into this incredible covenantal love where he is extending and trusting his life is worth something more. And he's defining for us that, that um, when, where we couldn't walk through the wilderness and the temptations, he can. And so it's if emotions are engagements with the world that give us insight into the nature of the world, then my question is, what do Jesus' emotions teach us about being human? What does his love in this situation teach us? Jesus teaches us that we don't have to give our love to temporal things. The love within us is meant for more than houses and cars and clothes and food. The love within us is meant for more than power and position and status and authority. The love within us is meant for more than religious games for making God into our own image. My college RA had this sign on his room that said, An idol or a tool. And that sums up well this whole beautiful scene that material things we need, houses and cars to get to where we need to go, but are they an idol for us or are they the tool to bring more goodness, love into the world? Jesus models for us what walking in the agape love of the Father looks like. He engages the world with this great love and shows us our, our capacity to love in deeper levels than the temporal he teaches us the eternal, internal. Now, I don't have any cool stories about going into the wilderness because I was born in a city. But I do have one story that I think 
makes this point. When I was in high school, my absolute love, my absolute passion was basketball. And I was crazy about basketball. I, I spent um, every day practicing basketball. I was, you know, on the varsity team when I was a sophomore. And I was, um, this was my life. You know, I was going to get on the varsity team. And I was going to get a college scholarship. And we were good. We went to state finals every year. And we had really a good team chemistry. And I was the team captain. And finally it came to my senior year. And this is like the year on a good program where all the good things are supposed to happen. You're supposed to get the college scholarships. You're supposed to score a lot of points. And I was so focused. I was so passionate that I started to kind of lose sight of my family and my friends. And it was all about how well I could play on the court. And I didn't realize. It was like this slow sort of movement, you know. And the first six games, I was just awful forcing shots everywhere, turnovers everywhere. And I remember, like, after game six, like, just, just breaking down in tears of, like, why? This is the thing I wanted. I wanted to be good at this game. I wanted to get a college sport. And, and the next game, um, after this breakdown, uh, the coach pulled me out in the fourth quarter. And I'd even play the fourth quarter. And I had not played a fourth quarter in, like, four years. I was devastated. And yet sort of the... The, the routine is if you're a senior, your mom or dad or your own car, you can drive home in. And I didn't have my car, but I, I didn't want to be on the team bus. And so my mom took me home. And I remember, uh, you know things are bad when your mom can't say any words to you at all? And she was just like crying, like, like motherly cry. And she just kept tapping my leg. I'm in the driver's seat. She just kept tapping. Oh, it's okay. It's okay. And I'm like, oh, things are bad. <laughs> things are very bad. <laughs> and I remember that night, like, like really asking myself, like it was this internal tension, right? It was, um, I've, I love this sport. I, I, I want to be successful at this thing. And there's this internal tension in me of like, what do I do? And I remember thinking, why do I, why do I love basketball? And it came down to my teammates. And it came down to like the fun of just playing a sport. And it came down to like, you know, I've only got this amount of time to do this. I'm going to have to get a job eventually. And, and so I came to practice that next day. And I remember just like, I didn't know any of this. I didn't know what was going on. But I remember saying to myself, there was like this shift internally in me of like, I've got like 12 more games of high school basketball left. And I'm just going to enjoy my teammates. And I'm going to love this sport. And it was like, my heart just did this like, and I could at once love my teammates and experience joy and not worry about all the other things that happened. And it was like everything changed. I started scoring 20 points a game. I started like everything I had worked for like changed. The college scouts started calling. And it was like, this is not, it wasn't about that. Because by then it was funny. I was like, oh, another college scout called? That's funny because I gave it all up, you know. And so it's this internal change within us. And so what agape love asks for us. It asks for us, Jesus models for us this agape love of the Father that whatever we're going through, whatever wildernesses we're in, whatever we're facing, all the temporariness of being human, what, all the contingencies of being human, we can live in this agape love of God. And we can, like Jesus did before us, walk through this wilderness in this great love. So what do I want to say to um, that teenager that has like the broken heart at their first relationship ever, about um, my friends whose marriage ended, about my other friend who lost their house. What I most want to say about the eternal internal 
is walk in the agape love of the Father. Give up these, these loves that are not eternal and walk in the agape love of God. Amen.